Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host Alex Andreu. If we're going to deal with corruption in the police force, we have to look at it straight in the eye. We have to see how it works the nuts and bolts of it. What I want from this inquiry is to look at that corruption straight in the eye, because if we can't do that, then we can never begin to deal with it. Those were the words of Alistair Morgan, the brother of investigator Daniel Morgan, murdered with an axe in the car park of the Golden Lion pub in Sydenham 34 years ago. He was speaking to Gavin Esler after the then Home Secretary Theresa May announced the setting up of a Daniel Morgan independent panel, intended to carry out a root-and-branch review of the numerous failures in the case and to explore the links between private investigators, police corruption and the press free of state control. And yet here we are, eight years from that announcement, with a Home Office still haggling with a panel over the timing and format of the publication of its report. With me to discuss it, my guest today needs little introduction, one of the sharpest legal minds, Financial Times columnist, friend of the podcast, and Twitter's go-to legal commentator, the artist formerly known as Jack of Kent, it's David Allen Green. David Allen, welcome. (laughs) Hiya. (laughs) At a time when the only guide to public propriety appears to be whether an issue is mentioned on the doorstep or not. Can you explain to me and the listeners why this story matters, quite aside from latest developments? There are a number of things about the Daniel Morgan case which are of interest. Most narrowly, of course, is the actual circumstances of that dreadful death back in 1987. But following on from that death, in the aftermath of that death, there was a an extraordinary sequence of collapsed investigations and prosecutions into this case. And these prosecutions and investigations seem to collapse under very odd circumstances. And then, taking on from that, there is the whole nexus of the Metropolitan Police of the time, the private investigation industry, and the media, and the relationships between all of those, some of which have never properly been examined. And so when this report comes out, it will hopefully explain the circumstances of the death better than before. It will hopefully explain why prosecution and investigation after one another all collapsed. And perhaps it might even be able to show us what happened in those dark years in relation to the media, the police and the private investigation industry. Because there were some not very nice things going on at that time, but we've never really understood how bad it was. Leveson 1 showed bad practices in the press, but didn't actually lead to Leveson 2, which was going to look at the relationship with the police. This is the nearest we're ever going to get to that. 
Now, the case did acquire sort of fresh momentum in the aftermath of the Leveson inquiry, to which you gave evidence, I think. What is the link between this case and the press? This case was going to be looked at by the Leveson inquiry. In a way, this independent panel report was an alternative to this being looked at by Leveson. And so there is a link. Leveson never actually looked at Daniel Morgan. Leveson too might have done. Theresa May set up this panel as an alternative to this being looked at as part of that inquiry. Uh, the relationship with the media is is complicated uh, because on the face of it, what has the media got to do with a dreadful murder in Sydenham in 1987? It's what happened after that because after 1987, especially as the 1990s went by, the private investigation industry, the police and the popular press formed a very close relationship and there was a trade in private information. The purchasers, the demand side, was the press and that is how they got so many stories. And some of those stories came from the so-called dark arts of hacking, blagging, data protection invasions and a whole range of things, which was essentially outsourced to the private investigation industry. The private investigation industry in turn, were very, very close, was very, very close to the police. And indeed, many private investigators were former police officers. Sometimes they were current police officers (laughs) working alongside that. And in in a way, that wasn't surprising, and it was a significantly unregulated area. And so you had the supply side of the trade in private information, and you had the demand side. And Leveson 1 dealt with the demand side, the culture of newsrooms and so on. Hmm. This is the nearest, as I said, we're going to get to being able to look at the supply side of the trade of private. So if I were to do like, and I understand obviously this will be riddled with inaccuracy and lack nuance, but if I were to do like the 280 character headline of of the the sort of the nexus, it would be that a private investigator was murdered mm-hmm. and the, the, the head police person assigned to the case turned out to be connected to that investigator's business partner. In mm-hmm. fact, after retiring from the police, went into business with that former business partner of the victim and then in the 90s, that company ended up the go-to one for many tabloids doing a multitude of questionable stuff. Just to get the gist of it, I mean, I don't want in many ways to give too much of this podcast to the facts of the case because we'll never get near the work of brilliant journalists like, you know, the bylines Peter Jukes and uh, the Guardian's Nick Davies who have devoted a large chunk of their life to this case, there's even a sort of 10-episode podcast series explaining the facts and the twists and turns. So I want to uh, concentrate on sort of these latest developments. So there has been a sort of undignified hokey-cokey between the Home Office and the panel. The Home Office tried to delay publication in order to vet and possibly redact the report. Is that right? Yes. Well, just going back to what you said, It is important to understand this case in stages. 
as you said, this stage of the actual murder is one stage. Then there's what happened to all the people involved afterwards and the connections they had with, with the media. And then we have the collapsed prosecutions and the collapsed investigations, and then you have this panel report. And so for eight years, the panel have been going through an awful lot of information. And to have some sort of sense of how much information they've had to look at, the last of the prosecutions collapsed because of the sheer amount of defence disclosure, which was not done. There were so many documents. And it isn't so much that all the documents are back from 1987. It is all the investigatory documents, the supergrasses, the links with the various criminal figures and and correspondence. There's a huge amount of information. They were still finding boxes like a year after the prosecutions collapsed, weren't they? Yeah. And, and, the, and the panel have gone through this in accordance with the terms of reference. Uh, it was supposed to only last a year. If you look at the original terms of reference, it was envisaged this panel would get through it in a year. It's mm. taken eight years. And that sort of suggests two things. It suggests that they've done a serious job with a lot of complicated information. Mm-hmm. It also points to the fact that there have been fairly rigorous legal processes followed. Something called maxualization, which mm. is where you are criticizing somebody in a formal report. You go to those people first and tell them they're going to be criticized so they have a fair opportunity to respond. Mm. That has been done at length. The, the, the panel have maxualized the, the, the report. The police, uh, the Metropolitan Police and their lawyers had notice of any criticism, which, which is going to be directed at them. It's ready to publish. And now we had Pretty Patel's intervention. So what was that intervention? The intervention is, 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 is quite an extraordinary thing, because if you look at the panel's terms of reference, what was envisaged was quite ordinary, which was that the, the report would be finished, it would be released to the family, it would be released to the Home Secretary, and then the Home Secretary would lay it before Parliament. That seemed appropriate. This is a major report. Theresa May had a sincere interest in this, to actually have a report commissioned by the Home Secretary and then laid by the Home Secretary before Parliament would actually show how serious a matter this had all been. Mm. It also had the legal consequence, although some legal commentators have different views, but generally speaking, a report which is laid before Parliament will have absolute privilege in respect of anybody suing for defamation or anything like that. Oh, right. So it's covered by parliamentary privilege. By... There is, there's a little bit of doubt. The question is yeah. whether this is a paper order to be published by Parliament, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, generally yeah. speaking, if it's published before Parliament, it's fairly fairly immune from legal attack. And so there are two reasons why it should be put before Parliament, the ceremonial bit and also perhaps the legal bit. And so the panel told the Home Office they had finished the report and we were going to give it to the Home Secretary and the Home Secretary was going to put it before Parliament and that is what was going to be expected. That was, was mm-hmm. going to be the ordinary course of affairs. What made it extraordinary was the Home Office went back and said, well, we can't do it straight away because Prince Philip has died and there's elections, so we're going to have to delay it. I understand. And, right. and those, those excuses came and went. And then suddenly, almost out of, of, out of nowhere came, oh, we want to look at it for national security and human rights act points which as i understand it the the panel had 
independent people looking at it from precisely those angles and vetting it from precisely those angles. Yeah, it's right? complete codswallop. It's border dash. The, the, the report, as far as it raises any national security issues, the Met would have identified them anyway, because we're talking mm-hmm. about police operations here, and who else would have been able to identify it better than the Met in any case? And second of all, they do have their own incredibly good lawyers, and and Baroness O'Lone herself is a lawyer with an experience of an, an understanding of this area. So straight away, I thought there was something up here. Some things weren't adding up. I did not believe, and I do not believe, that raising national security and human rights at points was a sincere thing by by the Home Office. It struck me that these were legal arguments, legalistic arguments being used which would make it more difficult for the Home Office to be challenged in court over any delay. Because if they sat on the report for ages and the panel tried to threaten to publish it, Mm -hmm. uh, the Home Office could go to court and say to a a credulous judge, National Security, Human Rights Act points, and the judge would nod along and say, OK, I'm not going to order the publication of it. Because that that would be the risk-averse thing to do, I guess. And then it was the panel, actually, that on hearing this, refused to publish the report to the Home Office, right? Yes. So they said, uh, if that's what you're going to do, we're not giving you the report, which is completely extraordinary. (laughs) And quite right for them to do so. And so you had a standoff where each of the parties involved did have an ultimate weapon, i.e., the Home Office could say, we're not going to lay it before Parliament. And the panel said, well, we're not going to give it to you. So you had an unsatisfactory standoff in a circumstance where the family have waited for such a long time for this report to be published. And so the question is, is why did the Home Office want to introduce a delay at this stage if the reasons they give are not sincere? And the, the answer to that is perhaps threefold. First of all, the government may want forewarning of what it says. It may well be that they want to uh, share that information, either formally or informally, with, with other people, other elements. But they may, want to uh, they may want to just delay it as far as possible and make sure that it doesn't actually get published, or at least not published in the time where it might be politically, otherwise politically sensitive in respect of relationships between the Home Office and the Met and the, and the relationships with the media. Or it could be that they actually wanted bits of it taken out, which they expected to be in there. So delay, forewarning, retract. But today, just moments before we recorded this episode on, on, on Friday, it was announced that there is now an agreed date for publication. And it looks as if the Home Office has looked, it's lost part of it. It's lost the ability to delay it indefinitely. It is still getting to be forewarned about what's in it, although they're going to actually have to send some lawyers and officials and sit in a room at the panel without their phones and a bit like Robin Cook before the Scott report. And any retractions from the report are going to be signalled. They're going to be signposted. So when it's published, we'll be able to see which part of it has actually been deleted because there'll be a footnote. And that would be contestable in court. We could go to court to judicial review. So it makes redactions more difficult. Far more difficult and contestable. Let me just mess with your brain a little bit. So as lawyers, we are, are, (laughs) look, as former lawyers, we're used to arguing 
both sides, okay? So as an intellectual exercise, put aside your misgivings okay. and make to me the best case you possibly can as to why the Home Office is right to try and do this and may have genuine um, reasons of public interest for wanting to do this. The only charitable explanation I can give, which doesn't quite add up, but the most char- the only charitable one is this is not a statutory inquiry. It's an independent panel. If it were a statutory inquiry, there would be formal rights of the Home Office to actually step in and actually ha- see the report before it's published. They don't have that. This is outside the statutory scheme. The, mo- the only charitable explanation I have is that they possibly didn't want to set a precedent of allowing independent panel reports to be published without any Home Office involvement whatsoever. That's kind of the point of independent reports, though, isn't it? That That is precisely the reason for independent panels like this to come up with a report free of state interference. Absolutely. Uh, And it also doesn't add up to the excuses they gave, because the excuses they gave aren't actually the ones which would necessarily fall under the Inquiries Act anyway. But you are right about independence. But just to be contrary to you, imagine there was a report and it came out and it did, for example, name some intelligence agents who were then put at risk. Or some sort of police operation, which perhaps, you know, for example, there was a great deal of bugging going on, especially of the suspects, and it may well expose certain operations or operatives. There is an argument there, that, but nothing to be gained by putting that information to the public domain. But as we've already seen, the panel itself has been properly legally uh, advised and the Met has already been involved. Yeah, I mean, it would be completely extraordinary for a panel of this constitution that had taken this must, much time over a report to do something that cack-handed, in my view. And so, so the bottom line here uh, is that there is no good reason for what the Home Office tried to do over the last week or so. I mean, is it possible, if we go into wild speculation mode, is it possible that we're looking at a sort of line of duty screenplay here where junior people involved at the time are now quite senior people? Possibly. And this is why everyone is panicking. If, if, If you can just imagine an X and a Y axis here. At the base, we have what happened in Catford Nick, Catford Police Station in 1987. Okay, the fact that bad things happened in police stations in the 70s and 80s is no surprise. I'm from Birmingham. I was brought up with the wonderful West Midlands serious crime squad all around. It It is no surprise that the police were bad uns in the 70s and 80s. So established is that it isn't even the Sweeney. They make comedies like, like, like uh, Life on Mars out of it. Mm, it is mm. so established. So you've got that as the base. Then on the x-axis, you've got how far this goes up the Met. How far within the Metropolitan Police did these practices go? Was it just some bloke down Catford Nick helping his mate out? Or was it something which actually involved people who are either at the time were senior or went on to be senior? On the y-axis, you have got how far did it go outside of the Met? How far within the private industry, investigation industry did these sorts of relationships go? How far into the media did they go? And mm. so the report, I don't know, I've not read it. I don't want to prejudge it. It may well be that the report comes out and it stays in and around Catford Nick and there's nothing extraordinary which we don't know already. Yeah. Or it could be that it goes very senior in the Met and it goes very far into Fleet Street in the private industri- investigation industry. Or 
as your colleague uh, Janan Ganesh would say, it, it might be unknown unknowns, as it were. So mm-hmm. stuff we can't even fathom. For instance, you know, there there is the involvement of someone completely off left field, like a royal or something like that. It's possible. Uh, for one thing, is the focus will be on the Met. They are the ones who have been party to the Maxwellization. The press really haven't been. So it is highly unlikely there will be any criticism there of media figures unless there has been some sort of Maxwellization process and nobody's known about it and the media have already been consulted. Hmm. You cannot publish these reports under under the general law without Maxwellization, without incurring liability. You've got to give people a fair opportunity to respond to criticism. Now, one one point I wanted to explore briefly, although I suspect I know the answer, is there any hope of fresh charges? Many of the central cast involved, as it were, have actually won malicious prosecution damages from the Met. Um, the, The quality of evidence does not tend to improve with time. Is there any notion that fresh charges may result from this? I suspect not. The whole point of the report when it was set up and you look, if you look at what Theresa May said at the side, was that as an alternative to trying to press on with any any further charges. Not only have there been formal acquittals, uh, there has also, as you said, civil claims for malicious prosecution against mm. the police. It would be very difficult to revive those. So it may well be that this report is the last formal word on the matter. Yeah, unless, of course, it identifies different people then it might be possible well the question is is whether it will actually launch something which will allow us to look more widely at the practices of the met at the time because this is the nearest we might get to leverson to it may well be that it reveals things which need a more rounded view of 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 what was happening at the time with the police tell me dear man how does this fit in what seems to be a general pattern of this government's aversion to, to, to transparency, evasion of un- accountability. It fits quite, 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 quite well within the sort of narrative which is beginning to form. This is basically the Home Secretary trying to bully an independent panel. There's no other way mm. of looking at this. None of mm. the reasons mm. given by the Home Office for this late intervention add up. And so if there's no good explanation but can only a bad one and it just looks looks like an exercise exercise of power it also contrasts with what's happened with the Bashir thing with the bbc yes i thought that actually i i i it brought that to my mind that the treatment of the two you know has been really very very different hasn't it it has and what we're talking about is Basically, the dark arts, as they were euphemistically called in, in, in the 80s and 90s, Bashir blagged his way into access to, 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 to a member of the royal family, mm. created fabricated documents. Okay, the, the significant difference is that he did that in-house. What Fleet Street was doing at the time, and it wasn't just one title, this was a general problem with the newspaper industry at the time, they were outsourcing it to the sort of people who once upon a time worked with Daniel Morgan. And that mm. was their business model. And it was an incredibly lucrative business model in, in the 80s and 90s. There was a lot of money to be made on the private industry side, but private investigation industry side. And there was also a huge amount of stuff you could put in your newspapers, which otherwise would not be available. There mm. was so much interest in keeping this going. And this is what goes, is, is particularly interesting. Was there any undue influence at any point to try and keep this commercial model on on 
going, even though there was a fallout of the murder of Daniel Morgan. Yeah. I mean, I was listening to, um, on a tangent, to former Obama advisor Ben Rhodes, who has written extensively on populism this morning, and he identified the key tools that Orban used to take Hungary from sort of democracy to autocracy. And it struck me that what he said was that when Orban got into power, he acted to keep it. And he did this in the following ways. He neutered courts, he enriched cronies who funded him, he turned media into a government mouthpiece, he changed the voting laws, and he dominated the landscape, wrapping everything in a flag. Mm -hmm. Should we be more, more worried about stuff like this. Does it fit in, in the same nexus as the unlawful prorogation of parliament and, you know, and ignoring the person in charge of interpreting the ministerial code and ending up with them having to, to, uh, resign? Is this government outside accountability at the moment? What it goes to is this sense within the government that any other entities within civic society with power are not to be able to exercise that power unless it's approved by, by, by the government. And so you have the government attacking the courts, you have the independent civil service, the independent diplomatic corps, some attacks upon the universities. And what you have here is a, an independent panel who were able to, to investigate something incredibly sensitive and were able to publish it. You cannot imagine the current government setting up a panel like this. That's true. And what you had was somebody who was threatening to publish something which could be highly sensitive outside of the control of the government. And I think that probably felt intolerable to the Home Secretary. And it mm. wasn't going to be allowed to happen. And so we've ended up with this situation. And yes, it does go to this centrism, this intolerance of anybody within civic society having power other than that which is approved by central government. It also goes to relationships with the Met and the media, and the government will prefer the narrative of attacking the BBC over something mm. which uh, also dates from broadly the same period as the failed prosecutions. But it suits the government to to to, to make uh, to attack the public service broadcaster. So maybe like the Cameron administration, even though the publication of this thing can't be stopped, there mm. is intrinsic value in being able to say to the press and the powerful people, look, we tried. Mm -hmm. We tried to, <laughs> to keep it a little bit more quiet. Possibly. It may well be. But I, I, it may well be that the press have not formally asked Patel to do this. And to use a famous lawyer's phrase, she's gone off on a frolic of her own, thinking mm. that I can't accept something having power other than uh, through my approval. So yeah. I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by, by nature. Conspiracies do exist usually to cover up the cock-ups because it's the only time people are sufficiently focused and motivated to form a conspiracy. <laughs> I do not think there's some sort of grand conspiracy to block publication of this Morgan report. I can think it's perfectly possible that the Home Office and the Home Secretary in particular just did not like the idea of learning about what this report said at the same time as everybody else. And they weren't going to accept that. How extraordinary. That, I mean, now that you say it, that sounds just completely par for the cause. As George Carlin used to quip, there's no need for a formal conspiracy when your objectives align. David Allen, thank you for your time and for your insight on this. Thanks, Alex.
There are expectations of a national level of justice, wrote the son of Daniel Morgan last week. The law is supposed to represent a starting point from which victims of crime can begin to rebuild their lives, where the grieving can be anchored a moment in time. That is not something my family has known. I hope the publication of this report becomes that moment in time for the family of Daniel Morgan. They have fought so hard for so long, they have earned a rest. This is Alexandreou, deep inside the bunker, saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreou. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.